0: Good morning. So, uh, I feel like I feel really guilty. I've been away for so many weeks. I've done two things at the same time in one morning. I've been extra, extra, worked extra hard this morning to do drums and do a sermon. So, I hope I've made up for my missing th- three weeks in a row, Jeff. Sorry, sorry about that. Um, so, this morning we're going to look at Matthew six. So, if you all like to turn there, but let me just pray as you're all t- t- turning to Matthew six. Thank you. Father God, thank you so much for this morning, thank you for the lovely day outside, thank you for the chance we have to gather as your family, uh, as your community uh, of children, that we would uh, find uh, joy and we would find uh, a grace in the passage that we're going to read this morning. Would 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 we uh, be open to your Holy Spirit, would you help me speak clearly and speak uh, faithfully to your word, and would you help us to listen well. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. Um, so. The World Health Organization released a brief in March 2022 this year, which stated that, COVID-19, that the COVID-19 pandemic triggered a 25% increase in the prevalence of anxiety and depression worldwide. In the article, they said, this is a wake-up call to all countries to pay more attention to mental health and do a better job of supporting their population's mental health. One major explanation for the increase is the, is the unprecedented stress caused by the social isolation resulting from the pandemic. Linked to this were constraints on people's ability to work, seek support from loved ones, and engage in their communities. Loneliness, fear of infection, suffering, and death for oneself and for loved ones, grief after bereavement, and financial worries have have all also been cited as stressors leading to anxiety and depression. Amongst health workers, exhaustion has been a major trigger for suicidal thinking. Last week, the University of Cambridge reviewed five deaths by suspected suicide in the months of March to June, this year alone. That's the same number of suicides documented at the university in the past four years. All deaths were thought to be due to mental health struggles. GPs are seeing more and more young people refer with anxiety, anxiety, depression and low mood. And this is not just pandemic-related. Great British Bake Off winner, Nadia Hussain, released a documentary called Anxiety and Me in 2019, before COVID struck. In it, she says, Anxiety is the most lonely, most isolating thing to have because you are your own worst enemy. There are voices in my head telling me I'm not good enough. I'm going to have a panic attack. Everyone will see I'm weak, and everyone will see that I'm sick. And I know there are thousands of people, thousands of people out there who are just like me. A nice start to the morning, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So anxiety and worry are becoming more and more of a challenge that, that the church is facing in its own members. Yeah. It is not enough to dismiss it as a Generation Z problem. If you, know what, if you don't know what that means, go ask guys later. We, we also can't put it down to weak constitutions or poor family units, although the eroding family structure in the Western world has a lot to answer for. But as a church we must consider the biblical and godly approach to this rising tide of emotional turmoil that's affecting our, our communities and our young people. What does God say? Whether, what does Jesus say about anxiety and worry? And how can we, as the light and salt of this world, present an effective answer to these issues? Today we will be looking at part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 to help us deal with this topic. In verses 25 to 34, Jesus specifically deals with worry and anxiety. Now, on the surface, when you read the passage, the message might seem trite, almost like a Bob Marley song. Don't worry, be happy. But when we dig deeper, we uncover both rich blessing and impenetrable armor against the insidious attacks of anxiety. We find the foundation that will help keep us firm in the fearsome storms of worry. Just a quick note, this is not about medical anxiety so specifically about the anxiety that we face within our day-to-day lives medically diagnosed anxiety is a whole other topic that I'm not going to touch and that's something that's dealt with by healthcare healthcare professionals so please don't confuse the two things I'm talking about day-to-day worry and anxiety that we would have so let's read the passage Matthew chapter 6 uh, verses 25 to 34 therefore I tell you do not worry about your life what you will eat or drink or about your body what you will wear Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labour or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, in all his splendour, was dressed like one of these. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, sorry, in Matthew chapters 5 to 7, better known as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking to to a rapt audience, just like this one in front of me here. The Sermon on the Mount is one of the most well-known and well-loved of his sermons, containing such pearls of wisdom as love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, and turn the other cheek. It contains the Beatitudes and the Lord's Prayer, and it has been studied fervently by many, and even Mahatma Gandhi, if the have read it every day, and said regarding it, Christ's Sermon on the Mount fills, fills, fills me with bliss even, even today. Its sweet verses have even <laughs> today the power to quench the agony of my soul. But the sermon is more than just sayings by which to live. Many a wise, and, a wise and, and eloquent man has preached on these passages. Today I shall be added to that list. No, I'm just kidding, it's not true. <laughs> one, of, one of those wise men was Oswald Chambers. In his studies on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, the Sermon on the Mount is not just a set of rules and regulations. It is a picture of the life we will live when the Holy Spirit is having his unhindered way with us. So let's dive into this this passage to see the life that we can live without anxiety and worry by the help of the Holy Spirit. I've broken it down into two points, uh, the the futility of worry and the antidote to worry. So the futility of worry and the antidote to worry. So let's start by looking at verse 25 and our first point, the futility of worry. The, The passage starts with a therefore and a command. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Well, what is the therefore, therefore? Jesus has just finished warning the listeners not to store up treasure on earth as these treasures are bound to decay and disappoint. He has a stern warning that if we place our energy into obtaining earthly treasures, our hearts will be in darkness and be disappointed. So in verse 24, just before we begin our passage, Jesus puts forward a very black and white choice. We cannot serve both God and money. And he knows the next question that, that his audience is, is going to have is, well, if we can't get money to get our daily essentials, how will I survive? He then proceeds to reassure them then that they do not need to worry. So verse 25, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear is life not more than food and the body more than clothes. And he follows up his command with, a, with, a, with an example. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet, your, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by wearing at a single hour to your life? I just want to structure this. So, um, Jesus starts with our main sources of anxiety our life, food and drink, and our bodies, clothing. He then asks a rhetorical question, a tool that he uses quite a lot, to show the listeners that the futility of their worry. Is life not more than food? Is not the body more than clothes? A rhetorical question is a question that is used to make a point rather than get an answer. So it really only has one answer. And the answer is obviously yes. By asking the question in such a way, Jesus tries to remove the listener from the place of anxiety and place them within the context of reality. He wants to show them that, that their focus on food and clothes is misaligned with what is really important. And his first example is to point about life and survival. So could I have the first slide, if that's okay, please? Get it up in a second. So he's talking about life. go uh, one before that, if that's okay, thank you. So he's talking about life, and he points to the birds. So he says, let's take a sparrow, for instance, a, co- a common bird, the birds of the air. Your average sparrow does not have to get up in the morning, saddle up their oxen, till the ground, scatter the seed, Water it religiously. Pet the fruit from worm, frostbite, mold, rabbits, insects. Ensure it's harvested, sorted, bagged, and sold to market. The birds flit and fly. They sleep when they want to, and they obtain food when they need it. Provided within the ecosystem that they occupy. Or Or for you Lion King fans out there, the circle of life. And yet, Jesus then turns his camera back on us. He uses another rhetorical question, and he asks if we think that we've been sold a bum deal compared to your average garden bird. No, of course not. As it says in Genesis, we are made in God's image. God gave Adam and Eve, and therefore us, authority over the whole earth to have dominion over it. In Psalm 8, David says, God has made man a little lower than angels and made him ruler over the works of God's hands and placed everything under his feet. We are so much more valuable than birds. And then he drives the point home with a final rhetorical question. How can worrying add a single hour to our lives? Well, the answer is it simply can't. If survival is your whole goal, if being able to sustain your life is your primary aim, then you're chasing after rainbows. Jesus wants us to see that the birds of the sky do not exhibit the same breathless, all-consuming panic that many of us do about the state of our lives. Yes, there's a need to be sensible, to plan ahead, to sow, reap and store, but that's not the be-all, end-all. In the end, our lives will not be lengthened by our own doing, by one iota. Why? Because Jesus knows our lives, he's the giver of our lives, and he is the one who provided it. Without him, we are nothing. As it says in Acts 17, 28, For in him, Jesus, we live and move and have our being, So why worry? We cannot change his already made sovereign plan. We cannot change his life-giving grace. So second point then, in verses 28 to 30, Jesus turns his, his attention to the other big worry consuming his listeners, their clothes or their body. Why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of, grass of the field, which is here, here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Having dealt with our inner desire for survival, Jesus then highlights our outer preoccupation with appearance. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think we all would worry what people think of us on the outside at one point or another. We can all be obsessed with our, with our, with our, with our, with our appearance what we look like, what clothes we wear, or what our body image is. As part of their Be Real campaign in 2019, the YMCA found that almost two thirds of young people feel pressure to look their best online, and over 70% regularly worry about, uh, th- about their appearance. And the Mental Health Foundation surveyed 4,500 adults in 2019 and found about a third of all these adults felt anxious or depressed because of concerns about their body image. Appearance matters to a lot of people. But to make it easy for the listener to get the point, Jesus uses the same structure to realign our thoughts. So second slide there, please, if you can't think. He starts with a question and the point about clothes. He then follows it with an example, the flowers. He exaggerates the flowers' helplessness, or he shows their helplessness, their lack of control over their, 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 their appearance. They just grow and die. But yet even Solomon, the richest and most well-adorned of all Israel's kings, as we read about in the Old Testament, couldn't hold a candle to the beauty and elegance of the flowers of the fields. He then points out their inconsequentiality. They're here today and tomorrow are thrown into the fire. One day, that's it. But this time he ends with a great warning and a, and a great reproach. Will he, God, not much more clothe you, you of little faith? This sentence, you of little faith, might sort of imply a bit of frustration, but it might also just want to get to the heart of his listener. A lack of faith in God's provision implies that we do not see God, our Father, as a kind, gracious, sustaining God. Later in Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 to, 9 to, 9 to 11, part of the same Big sermon. Jesus says, "Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him?" God is not only our Creator, but is also our sustainer. All we have, or will have, comes from Him. As Charles Spurgeon said about this particular verse. The little faith, that term, is not a little fault, for it greatly wrongs the Lord and sadly grieves a fretful mind. To think the Lord who closed the lilies will leave his own children naked is shameful. O little faith, learn better manners. Jesus finishes his examples by re-emphasizing the point he's trying to make. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? And in verse 32, he gives them two reasons. So, verse 32 says, for the, for the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So, in this verse, Jesus gives us both a negative reason and a positive reason, a warning, let's say, and an encouragement. The warning is that running after the worries of, the, of this world is a trait of unbelievers. And as we saw in Matthew 6, verses 19 to, tw- 19 to 24, like I said before, Jesus has just implored his listeners not to fill their hearts with the desires of this world, because they will perish, spoil, and fade. Those who do not believe in God run after these earthly things, money, pleasure, clothes, cars, whatever it is. But we cannot serve both God and the things of this world. If you're truly a believer here, here, here today, if you truly call yourself a Christian, why would you run after all these things instead? Groceries and garments, sustenance and suits your heavenly father knows what you need and will give it to you jesus is warning us away from the world from the way this world thinks and instead asks us to look up from our worries to our father he knows what we need and this is the positive reason the encouragement our loving god will graciously provide us with all that we need Now, just a quick note, and I'll come back to it later, but this is not a promise of prosperity, but it is a reminder that we are completely loved and sustained at all times by a God who knows us and can can provide for us. So why worry? Well, worrying is futile. So what should we do instead? Jesus gives us a better option, and we're going on to my second point. So verses 33 to 34, an antidote to worry. An antidote to worry. So Matthew 6, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus tells his audience that instead of chasing after food, drink, and clothing, they should be chasing after God's kingdom and his righteousness. Well, what does seeking after God's righteousness, sorry, God's kingdom and righteousness look like? A few verses as before, Matthew says, Jesus says in Matthew, store up for yourselves, Treasures in heaven, where moth and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Seeking God's kingdom is living a life of faith in obedience with God's perfect requirements. Seeking God's kingdom is living a life of faith. Uh, Jonathan mentioned this before from Romans 3 but l- righteousness running after righteousness is a life is, is living a life of faith in Christ's sacrifice and therefore working in a life of obedience towards God's perfect r- perfect r- requirements not by ourselves not because we can do it but because we have come to him in faith and he helps us now this is important for three reasons now number one seeking God's kingdom honors and pleases God in first Thessalonians 4 verse 1 Paul says brothers and sisters we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living But now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more So it pleases God Remember your heavenly father made and sustains you he gives you everything Don't you want to live a life that pleases him? So second seeking God's kingdom by living a step with God points others to Jesus Jesus when we desire to live a life dedicated to our Heavenly Father, knowing Him more, loving Him more, it makes people ask us about Him. So 1 Peter 3 verse 15 says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. If we're living that life of hope, that life of obedience and faith and pursuing righteousness, we cannot help but speak of Jesus and His setting work on the cross, It naturally flows out from who we are. And the third and I think most important thing is, if we're seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness, it prepares us for heaven, where we will be living in obedience to God and relationship with him forever. It really begs the question that if we as believers are truly saved to be with God forever, that's when we come to him, we say, yes, I'm gonna live with God in heaven, I'm looking forward to that, I'm saved. Well, why put off living like that now? Why put off living for eternity when we're here now? And Paul encourages his readers to do this exact thing in Colossians 3, verses 1 to 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is not hidden with Christ in God what a mentality shift therefore while we seek to live in the way god has asked us to to seek his kingdom and his righteousness we will be more and more fruitful shining lights to the world and also imitating the light that we will be living unblemished and eternal in heaven so that's the ant that's the ant ant and antidote really but it does go without saying that we can't do this on our own okay while we live in the flesh while we live here on this earth we need the Holy Spirit's guidance and strength at all times to show us the best way to live. In Matthew 5, verse 6, Jesus again tells tells his listeners, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Rather than hunger and thirst for the things of this world, which will never satisfy, when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus says we will be filled to the brim. When our intentions are aligned with Christ, he will help us. And through the Holy Spirit, he will help us to live more and more in step with God. It also goes without saying that Jesus is not promising that we can get everything that we want. On the surface, it may seem that, that, that he's offering a prosperity gospel. Friends, just seek after God's kingdom and everything that you've been looking for, you'll, you'll get. Don't worry, it's a two-for-one deal. But we know that that's simply not true. We have seen ourselves and heard stories of Christians being killed, tortured, driven from homes, ostracized, ostracized from, their, from their families, all because they're seeking the kingdom of God. But not only that, we see it in Matthew itself. Let's go back to Matthew. So Matthew 10, 21 to 22, Jesus says, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And again in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When Jesus says in verse 33 that these things will be given to us, we need to, we need to realize that these things that he talks, uh, talks, uh, talks about are not necessarily the things that we think we need. Jesus knows what we need and will provide us with the things that will bring him the most honor and glory. But more importantly, our final and ultimate satisfaction Will come when we're finally at home with God, our Father, in heaven. Paul in Philippians three thirteen to fourteen says, "Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold, hold of it. That is his final goal. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize which God has called me heavenward, in Christ Jesus." Paul did not have an easy ride; he was beaten tortured, put in prison, and left for dead. But Paul forgets all of that. Paul forgets what is behind him because he knows that what what awaits him in heaven is all he needs and wants. Similarly, we cannot and must not expect an easy ride now, but we must remember that our reward is in heaven. To dispel this prosperity fallacy to his listeners, at the end of this passage, Jesus makes it very clear that seeking the the kingdom of heaven will not be easy. Verse 34. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus is not saying that we will have trouble-free lives. But he's offering a way to be anxiety and worry-free when we come to Christ. Because when those troubles come... When those anxieties hit hard, we can remember that God our Father, provider and sustainer, has our back all the way to eternity. And that's how, how, and that's how I'd like to end today. I just want to end with two very short practical reminders, two key truths to lock away that will help the Christian overcome worry. If you're not yet a Christian here, I do urge you to listen to these two and let them sink into your heart. Feel the weight of these truths against the weight of self-reliance. And reliance on God, who who provided a way to be set free, to live in perfect love with him. So the first reminder, the first truth is, remember your value to God. Remember your value to God. God loves you so much that he sent his one and only son to die for you. You're not just a creature to him, like a common garden bird. You're not a fleeting and flimsy flower. You were made for a relationship with the God of the universe. And he desires to know you and be with you forever. That is why he sent his son to to take on the punishment for sin and to die so that you don't have to. God did this so that we can live with him in eternity. And this leads me to my second reminder. The second reminder is to remember where your true home is. Remember where your true home is. You are not made for this world. If you believe in Jesus, if you are a Christian here today, you are caught in a terrible struggle. Paul mentions it in Romans 7. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. When sin entered this world, the perfect home that we shared with God and the perfect relationship that we had with him and his creation was broken. And that is why we are so at odds with this world, why why we struggle and strive to get the things we think will make us happy. But Jesus is pointing upwards. He's reminding us that there's a kingdom waiting for us, so much more incredible than this life, and it will be eternal. All that is wrong with now, all that we enjoy about now, all that we desire, all that we strive after, all that we struggle against, will pale in comparison to what lies ahead. If you hold these two truths close to your heart, you have tools to overcome any worry or anxiety that might come your way. Because God, the creator and sustainer of your life, loves you and has prepared a perfect, eternal home for you. Why would you ever have to worry? Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.